Um, Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We are working our way through this gospel, and Sam did a great job. He's, He's not here, but he did a great job last week kind of opening the book and giving us a bit of context for it and the background to it. Um, But one of the things that you discover and what we're going to discover through Mark is that it is full of these short little snippets, okay? Mark is just like blitzing through the story of Jesus and giving us like little shorter versions of what like Matthew or Luke do, and then John is a whole other category. Um, But Mark is slowly going through all the different stories and and trying to show us something specific with the little stories that he gives. It's almost like, and I don't know if this is still a thing, those of you who are in like um, sales, you would know this, but it's like the, the elevator pitch, right? You've heard of that before where you have like 30 seconds maybe. I think the idea was like you get in on the floor level of an elevator with someone and you've got like 10 floors or something to convince them to buy this product or whatever it is, right? You have a little bit of time to, to show them and convince them that this thing is important and, and even give them a context for it. Well, much of the time, what Mark is doing is that very thing. Like if you had 30 seconds to describe to someone who Jesus is, what would you say? What would you boil it down to? If you had to talk about the beginning of Jesus' ministry and just like keep it really brief, you know, get it down to a paragraph or two, what would you put in that paragraph? Well, for Mark, what we see in our text this morning is he puts in there this little two-part, almost like two little mini chapters to Jesus's kind of purposes and a little bit of like who Jesus is and what he's going to do in his ministry, all wrapped up in just like five verses. But these are things that uh, we're going to look at today, kind of in two parts, which I just call water and dust, okay? Two parts where we're going to see themes that Mark is going to introduce here that he's going to develop for the rest of the book. But he's going to just like really succinctly and shortly introduce us to them. So let's look again at these verses, and let's begin with verse 9. Verse 9 says this, and we just heard it, but let's listen to it again. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Mark begins by explaining that one of the first things that Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry, the start of everything that he's about to do, and all that Mark is going to explain is he entered into this obedient act of baptism. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that Sam talked about baptism and how baptism, the way John was doing it, was very different from what the Jewish people were used to. And there was a, there was a specificity to John's baptism. If you look up at verse 4, if, if you got your Bible, you'll see that John's baptism was one of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Okay, so that was, the, that was the purpose behind what John was doing in his baptisms. It was to repent, it was to turn, and to turn from your sins. And, and it says that people were coming to the Jordan and they were confessing their sins. So the question is, why is Jesus being baptized? Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sinless. And yet here he comes 
and he enters into this act of repentance and forgiveness of sins. What is it like? Why is Mark pointing that out? Then also in verse 9, Mark points out, points out this really interesting thing that Jesus has come from Nazareth. You see that in there? It's almost like tucked in there, like almost you could just pass over it. But it says Jesus came from Nazareth. And this is like a, it's meant to be actually like a direct contrast to those who were coming to John's baptism. So again, up in verse 5, it says, and all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were coming. So when John was being baptized, those who were coming were from Judea and Jerusalem, which was at that time the center of religious authority. So when you thought of like the religious people or those people who knew God or maybe would have had a clue into what God was saying, you would think Judea and Jerusalem. Like what, what God is going to do among his people, is going to be there at the center. And yet, what we see here is that Jesus doesn't actually come from there. He doesn't come from the most obvious place where everybody would think God's Messiah would come from. He comes from Nazareth. And if you, you know, are familiar with the other Gospels, um, in John's Gospel, you know, there's this story of Philip and Nathaniel, where Philip is trying to explain to Nathaniel that the Messiah has come. So he's trying to like say, like, this is amazing. Like, the Messiah has come. Everything that the Jewish people have been waiting for is finally here in the person of Jesus. I've found him. And it says this, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Just like imagine the good news, right? We have found him. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like, is, is that for real? Are you joking? He must be from Jerusalem, right? No, he's actually from Nazareth. He's like from this, this place. It's so different. It's so unexpected. Um, we used to live up in Durham. It's in about an hour north of here. Some people know it. You, you drive through it on your way to cottage country. There is a Tim Hortons, okay, so people stop in that town. But we used to live there, and there were so many times I would have conversations with people who would say, it's different up there, okay? And there was something even like, like literally when you pass like Highway 9 or something, when you got north of that little like physical barrier, um, people would just be like, I don't know, man, like the, the land is more rugged, you know, maybe the people are more rugged too, you know, the lawns aren't as manicured, or there's just a difference between like here and there, and, and I just remember pondering sometimes like, yeah, you know what, it, it is kind of different. I've lived in both spaces now, and I can just see a difference. Not that one is better or worse than the other, it's just different places, and if you've been in them, you kind of know it. That's what's happening here. And the reason that Mark is pointing this out, this baptism difference that Jesus is entering into it, and even this geographical difference that, you know, he's not from the center of religion. He's actually from like where maybe like the hicks are or, you know, he's out in the backwoods or something. That's where Jesus is coming from. Mark wants the reader and wants the audience to like get in their minds that Jesus has come to be with sinners. Jesus actually identifies with sinners, people who are far away from God. He's not repulsed by them. 
He's not like shocked by them. He actually wants to enter in and be close. And not only that, he wants to be close to them. He wants to actually identify. He wants to be identified. He wants to be marked by a closeness and an association with the rebel. Which is maybe a little um, unnerving for us because oftentimes we can like just subtly get into our mind that Jesus is like kind of here for Christians. That's kind of like why he's here, right? He's here for us. He's here for Christians. Well, Mark is saying like as plain as can be actually in a really succinct elevator pitch, Jesus has come to be with sinners. That's who he came for. And Mark is saying the point of identification is not just that like the sinner is this other category, but it's actually us. The Christian, the non-Christian, the sinner is actually us and that's who Jesus has come for. Now that phrase like the sinner, like Jesus has come for the sinner, that can almost be like a, you know, for people who are not Christians or people who are even anti-church, anti-religion, that's almost like a, a word that just, you know, grates on them and just rubs them the wrong way. And it's like there, you know, there's that language again, kind of like the church using language to um, put people in their place or to hurt people or kind of box them in, maybe even oppress them. And there's, there's reason sometimes why people think that. Maybe they've actually experienced that. But also, it could just be like, man, that's just like kind of negative language, right? So people who, you know, hate religion or just aren't into religion at all, that can be just put that aside. But what we'll discover actually and what we'll see over, you know, these weeks that we're in Mark is that that word sinner is also something that throws the religious people off. The idea that Jesus has come for sinners is something that makes religious people like really uncomfortable. And the people who should know, like the, the religious leaders from Jerusalem who should know what the word of God says, they should know what like the heart of God is all about, are completely blind to it. And so when they, hear, when they hear the word, you know, or the phrase, Jesus has come for sinners, they are in, in many ways in the same camp. So the religious and the irreligious are in the same place. They are thrown off by this. Thrown off by this idea that Jesus has come for sinners. And so for us today, the reminder is he's come for sinners, and which includes us. That's all of us. And that's actually the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to save sinners the Apostle Paul, you know, summarizes it beautifully in 1 Timothy. It's almost like he's giving his own little short testimony. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because, of, because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul, when, t when giving his own testimony, says, man, I was a sinner 
I was lost. I was doing all kinds of things and God in his mercy saved me. And that is actually the reason why Jesus came is to save sinners. And Paul says, just remember, just because like that was my former life, that doesn't mean I'm no longer that. I'm not like out of the sinner category. I'm saved by his mercy. This, like that's the good news, the gospel. And he says, I'm still a sinner saved by grace. A sinner saved by grace. And that is who Jesus has come. That's who he's come for. And that's really the good news of the gospel. But Mark goes on. Starting in verse 10 here, he gives us a, a glimpse into Jesus in this divine community. Jesus in this divine community. Look at verse 10. And when he came up, so Jesus was baptized by John. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here we get this insight into this Trinitarian divine community that Christ is actually existing in. This idea of this three-in-one God, the Trinity. Okay, one of those things, it's like a, the Trinity is like a mind wrecker, right? You're trying to make sense of this, that God is singular, God is one, but yet at the same time, he exists in these three parts. And, and the Bible actually never tries to do a really good job of explaining it, probably because we wouldn't really be able to wrap our mind around it. But throughout scripture, it gives us glimpses it gives us little insights into it. And this is one of those where we see that like Jesus here is in the flesh. He is incarnate. He is a, he's a man. And then we've got the spirit that comes like a dove. And then you've got the father which comes in the form of a voice. You've got all three parts happening right here. So Mark, unlike Matthew or Luke who kind of I don't know if they would have thought of it as sentimental. They go into like all the Christmas story, right? All that kind of stuff. Mark's just like straight into the Trinity, okay? He goes straight into the deep waters of Christ and who he is. But this image here of these three parts is what C.S. Lewis calls the, the dance, okay? It's these three parts of this singular Godhead who are different, have different parts, have different roles to play. And yet the reason C.S. Lewis calls it a dance is because they work together. They are just like in harmony in this community which has existed in eternity past and continues till today. Cornelius planting a, a, a writer and theologian kind of takes C.S. Lewis's idea of a dance and he puts it this way. The persons within God exalt each other they commune with each other and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard to others. So you've got this like description of the Trinitarian divine community of God in perfect harmony, self-giving, self-sacrificing, diversity of people within one, all working together in this one 
great dance. And that actually is who we have been created to be like. When we were made in God's image, we were actually designed and meant to be in that same sort of a divine dance. But we do it with each other and with God. Tim Keller puts it this way, if this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. If that is what God is like, this self-sacrificing, self-giving, divine being in total community of love and harmony and acceptance that we see. And, and this is actually at a moment where the way Mark describes it, it's like heaven just explodes open, right? He talks about it being like a, a, a torn open sky. The heavens are just bursting. And this is what we see when heaven bursts open, this divine community coming out. And so we are actually called to that as Christians, we're called to be part of a community with each other which has at its center um, God himself. And yet we live in an age, we live in this time in history when we are living in a society of, you know, direct contrast to that. We live in the age of this experiment called the smartphone, right? And not to make the smartphone like the greatest enemy because it could be so many other things, right? But we live in this time now where we've been given this illusion of like connectivity, which we've called the smartphone, which has only been around since 2007. Can you believe that? It's only been around since then. And yet, you know, I think I've referenced this before. There was an article in the Atlantic in 2017 already, which did this massive survey of, of it was specifically of, of teens, but just of people in general. And it kind of talked about the, the cost and the results of this age of the smartphone and just usage and what it's kind of driven people to and what it showed so clearly. And you can see the graphs in this article is like from 2007 when it relates to like friendships, wanting to be with people, uh, wanting to be within community. It's like the desire for those things is like dropped off the map. And then things like depression and suicide and feelings, feelings of loneliness and separation are like shot through the roof. And all it does is really confirm for us that we were meant to be a people in community. And, and we saw this as like a globe with the pandemic. And we're still seeing it. I mean, we're kind of coming out of it a little bit, but... We just saw, like, what, is our, what do our lives look like when we're totally disconnected, when we have to stay home? And it, it was, for those who were, like, alone, it was a painful experience. It was really difficult. And it's pointing to this design that God has made for us, that we're meant to be in community with each other. We're meant to be in community with God. Now, for us, we make that look like missional families, right? There's no text that we can point to that says, missional families in there, okay? I haven't even looked, but there's no missional family in the Bible, okay? And there's not even any like small group or like give it any kind of title you want, okay? We've just given it a title. All it is really is in scripture, specifically in the New Testament, there's over 60 different ways that it talks about one anothering, a calling for us to be together as God's people, where God is actually at the center of our lives. And so we've just called that missional families, where we actually come together 
And the vision is how do we as a, as a called body of believers that we call ourselves Citizens Church, how do we live this out? This divine dance, being in community with God and being in community with each other. And we've said specifically, we want to do missional family. So that's why like, you're going to, maybe you've been coming for, for a number of weeks and you're like, man, they keep talking about these missional families. Why do they keep talking about these things? This is, you're going to hear this a lot, right? Because we believe this, not that missional families is the greatest idea, but that people in community with God at the center is the calling of believers. And so we are actually going to like take each other to it and say, hey, are you in a missional family? And when you're in a missional family, are you actually entering into that kind of life of that community? Because words and like just feeling like you're in something, that's cheap, man. That is not going to go the long haul. So we're calling ourselves to something that we see is right here in the life of Jesus himself. He's actually modeling it for us. And there's going to be so many things, wave after wave of um, choices that will be difficult because we love to be independent, right? We're, we live in a world of independence. We love to have our own way. We like to pretty much just hang out with the people that we like, like our friends. And so this idea of like a diversity, a difference of people coming together, self-giving, self-sacrificing for the good of the other is not a natural calling. But we see it actually in this Trinitarian divine community. And so Mark says, community, yeah, God is in it, and you're going to see it throughout the ministry of Jesus. But there is a, there is an enemy. There is a, um, either internal or in the world that we live in, there is someone who doesn't actually want to see that kind of vision move forward. And that's where Mark goes next. Mark goes next, and this is where I've called it dust, okay? So we go from the water of the baptism, this like heaven moment where the heavens have opened up and like everything's beautiful and lovely. And then the next moment is like the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Here in this moment, Jesus is actually driven into the wilderness, and he faces his enemy, which Mark says is Satan. Okay, And Mark is not treating Satan like this kind of mythical creature or some sort of like idea. You know, he's going out to face this thing. Mark's like, Jesus is going out to face Christ's enemy. The enemy of Jesus has come on the scene. And he says the place that he's going to do that is actually in the wilderness. And again, the, the Jewish believers that would have been reading this would have had other wildernesses that would have come to their mind. And maybe, you know, if you've read the Bible a lot, you could even think of some of those. You know, think of Moses on Mount Sinai out in this wilderness place where nothing is, right? Just like this emptiness. Or Israel in that same wilderness later wandering for 40 years in this season of kind of being lost and, and rejecting God. Or Elijah running from Jezebel. And we'll, we'll look at that one in just a minute. But in the Jewish mind, the wilderness is a place of danger 
and gloom. It's, it's a place where actually like demons resided, okay? So nobody's going like, hmm, vacation time. Let's go to the wilderness. You know, like let's go off grid or something. Let's try something cool. No, in Jesus' day, that was like if you want to get away from the presence of God, which is impossible, but if you want to go to like the dark, kind of the place where nobody will support you and help you, you go to the wilderness. And that's the exact place where the Spirit actually leads Jesus to. Jesus actually confronts the, the horror and the loneliness and the danger of the wilderness. The place where nobody wants to go. The place where everybody is actually afraid to go. And Mark, if you saw there in the text, Mark even gives like a little bit of like um, depth into what he's talking about here. So he adds this interesting little line where he says, and he was with the wild animals. It's like this image of the garden gone wrong. The Garden of Eden, which is this beautiful image, you know, of perfection and safety and harmony with God. And now Jesus is going into this like anti-garden, this place of dust and darkness and horror. And the, the animals are there. And, and Mark's gospel may even have been alluding to the, the first century context of believers where, you know, when the time of Nero, and Nero's kind of famous for persecuting Christians, and Nero was even known to take Christians and wrap them in these skins of animals and kind of lather them up and throw them out to wild dogs. That's what Nero did. And so Mark, some people think Mark put that line in there to kind of, so the people in the first century who were like hearing about these persecutions could see and they could actually hear about Christ entering into this same sort of suffering and difficulty that they were actually going through that they could see that Christ actually is going through the same kind of horrors and darkness that those first century believers were experiencing. This wilderness picture is a picture of a new Adam entering into the garden. So in the first garden, you've got the Adam who goes in and is tempted and actually gives in to temptation. Well, in this story now, Mark is trying to introduce us to Jesus, who's the new Adam. He's a different kind of Adam. He's one who enters into the same kind of garden, but this garden is actually like a wilderness, and now he is also being tempted by Satan, but he's a new Adam in that he is not going to give in to the temptation so though he enters into our world and experiences the same kind of horrors that we are experiencing and the same kind of pain that we are experiencing, Jesus does not give in. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you are living in a world with an enemy, we as believers are, and when we enter into the same kind of obedience that Jesus enters into, so this baptism act of repenting and following God's way, it, it should not surprise us that the enemy of God is also our enemy and will stand against us. 
So the hard things that we also face, whether it's, you know, principalities or whether it's um, provoking to sin or whether it's something like that, that's actually the natural response of Satan. Now what we're doing here even as Citizens Church is pushing forward the kingdom of God. That's actually what we're doing, okay? We might just be like, this is just citizens. We're just coming on Sunday mornings. Well, actually what we're doing is we're trying to expand the kingdom of God. And I remember talking to a number of church planters who were like, hey, I just want you to know, and maybe you should let your people know. So I I don't know if I let you guys know, but I'm gonna let you know now. He said, you guys, what you're doing actually is expanding the kingdom of God And Satan, who is the enemy of the kingdom of God, will not stand for that. And so I had multiple church planters tell me of like experiences in their church plant where discouragement came to people, where marriages ended up on really rocky times, where some marriages were even broken, like in the first years of church planting. Now, you know, we're not just going to point everything to like, oh, that's Satan. No, it's actually choices that people make. But when you're on the front of what God is doing, when you are actually giving in to what the Spirit wants to do in your life, there is an enemy that will come in who will want to stop us at all costs. Satan does not want, he obviously doesn't want Jesus fulfilling his ministry, but he also doesn't want us even entering into that. And so when we follow in Jesus' steps and repent, you know, which is turn from, you know, the way that is the opposite of where God is going, and we enter into what God is doing, we actually discover that Satan is against us. And the temptations that Jesus faced were in many ways kind of normal. We don't have time to look at them, but if you look in Matthew and Luke's gospel, you see these temptations are kind of explained. They're in about 11 verses each. And it's stuff like Jesus is tempted with food. Jesus is tempted with stuff. Jesus is tempted with protection. And ultimately what Satan is driving at is power, but it's those basic things And so the temptations for us shouldn't be shocking when they're like really similar. Desire to accumulate things. A desire to like control our life. A desire to have lots of things. And all of that is like wonderful and good. But Satan actually uses those in an attempt to distract us from what God's will is actually for our lives. And so we see here that Jesus goes before us. Jesus actually doesn't call us into anything that he hasn't gone through himself. He actually goes through these temptations and these hardships, and he comes through on the other end successful, and and more than successful, he comes through actually protected. Look at verse 13 again. And this is just one line, but it should be, it's crucial for us to see it. Verse 13 again says, and he was in the wilderness, 40 days, being tempted by Jesus, and he was with the wild animals, and this last phrase, and the angels were ministering to him. The angels were ministering to him. Jesus, in all of this kind of darkness, and all of this temptation, is never alone. God never abandons him. God never leaves him. The angels are actually ministering him as he's going through this kind of 
earthly hell for us. And just like Jesus is never alone, we are also never alone. Whether we um, choose rightly to follow him and repent and we're like, yeah, I'm following that road, or we even choose wrongly. And, and a great example is the story of Elijah, Elijah and Jezebel in 1 Kings 19. So in this story, Elijah is threatened by Jezebel. She's like, I'm going to come and kill you. And he's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to run away, okay? Here's this like great prophet who's supposed to be, you know, speaking for God. He's like, I am hightailing it out of here. So in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, it says this. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, okay? So he went into this place where nobody wants to go. But he's like, Jezebel is after me. I'm hitting the road. I don't want to die. I want to save my life. So he goes into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. This kind of sounds like Jonah. Remember we went through Jonah? Similar kind of story, right? It's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. So Elijah's like, it's over. I'm done. He lays down. God, just kill me. And God doesn't abandon him. He's in this like wilderness season by choice even. He's choosing to go away from God. And God's like, you can't run away from me. You are my chosen. You can't get away. And he sends these angels and they say, and he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in strength, strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Elijah is nourished in his moment of rebellion in his moment of forgetfulness, whatever, wherever we want to kind of categorize that, in his moment of leaving God. But because he's God's chosen, God is there with him and will not leave him. And so Mark wants us, the readers, to see that even though Jesus willingly chose to go through this difficult and hard season of testing in the wilderness, that God is with him. And God is with us through the Holy Spirit through the scripture as we read it, through the people of God when we come together, those are ways that we are reminded that God's actually with us. Because, I mean, when we're honest with each other, we feel that way as well, don't we? When we go through hardship, that God has abandoned us, or we, like, we question, how is, how is it that God could let this evil thing happen to me? Couldn't God have like protected me Save me from this or that experience. And yet we're reminded over and over again in Scripture that God is with us through all of those things. And not only is he with us, he's actually gone through it himself. <clears throat> so let me just close with this. I'm not sure if you've um, only seen the Lord of the Rings movies or if you've read the books, okay? But evidently, there's a difference, okay? Now, I'm not like a big Lord of the Rings fan, but I have a friend who is a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and so they were like, you need to read the books. 
So I read through the three, the little trilogy. It took me like almost two years, literally. And I was in the last book and um, I was almost done. You know, I was like, I'm just not into this. I was halfway through book three and I was, it sat for, I think it was like a couple of months. It was getting dusty. It was like cat fur hairballs were coming around it. You know, it was like, and I was like, no, I need to finish this story. And so finally I went back into it and it actually like hooked me again. And as I'm reading the ending, I'm discovering the book is different from the movies, man. It doesn't end the same, okay? So this is spoiler alert here if you haven't read the books. But at the end of the books, there's this time where, you know, Sam and Frodo are the main characters. And the whole movie is all about this journey of them going to, what is it, Mount Doom or somewhere to destroy the ring. And now they're coming home. And they're having like these like these dreams of what it's going to be like to walk back into the Shire, this beautiful place, you know, of green circle doors that open, like all the beauty that you can imagine of the Shire. And they're like, this is going to be so good to be back there. And as they walk back and they actually come into the land of the Shire, they discover it's like being like beat up. It's, it's like had like this horrible stuff has happened to it. And suddenly they discover when they get there that Saruman, their, their enemy, their great enemy, he's there. He's in this place that they, they were just like longing for, this beautiful garden. And he's kind of like spouting these like threats to them again. And they're like, we destroyed, it's over. Like we threw the ring into the, into the Mount of Doom, whatever we call it, Mordor, I, don't, I can't remember the titles. It's over, right? The battle is won, it's finished. And yet here he is before them and he's yelling these threats. And he's like, I'm going to do this and if you do that, I'm going to do this. And, and suddenly in this moment, they're like frightened and here's what it says in the story. When Saruman says this, the hobbits recoiled, right? They're just like afraid again. But Frodo said, do not believe him. He has lost all power, save his voice that can still daunt you and deceive you if you let it. He's saying, it's done. The battle is over. Yeah, he's in the Shire here, and he's kind of like spouting these threats, but he says, it is finished, it is over. And Jesus here goes through this wilderness experience, knowing that it's only the beginning for him. Like this is the starting gun of Satan kind of coming after him over and over and over again. But remember, Mark is writing to Christians who know that Christ has defeated Satan, that the cross has actually happened, that he has risen from the dead. They have eyewitness accounts of him. And Mark says, you also are overcomers. We have a new Adam who has called us to something greater. And like John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, he says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So Mark introduces us to Jesus and he says, here's what it is. Jesus has gone through heaven and hell for you so that you can actually live as overcomers, as conquerors, as this new king comes to establish his kingdom. We are a part of a grand new kingdom that is real. And though it seems like the threats and Saruman's are all around us, they've been defeated. And we live as overcomers because of Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for we thank you for scripture that reminds us of what you have done and what you have gone through for us as your children and for sinners, Lord. That's everybody, and that is the that's the good news, Lord. Help us to be courageous to to share that with others, to tell our neighbors and to tell our friends that Christ has came has come to save sinners, and that's us first, that we are the sinners before you, and yet we've been given your mercy, as Paul said. And we thank you, Lord, for showing us Christ and who he is, that he is the King of kings, and that we worship the King in all of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.